Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God. Hi, I'm Ron Jorlock, and I want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. Today I'm joined by a familiar face, or in this case, a familiar voice. Uh, I'm joined again this season by Dr. Alex DePrima to talk about his new book, Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern. Alex serves as senior pastor of Emanuel Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He holds a PhD from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in historical theology with a focus on the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he's published several articles with Nine Marks uh, and with uh, the Spurgeon Center and here at Southeastern as well. Alex, brother, it's, it's so good to see you. It's so good to uh, be able to take some time uh, with this conversation. And uh, I'm so uh, happy to, to hear about this new resource on Spurgeon. Uh, brothers, it's a joy to be on the podcast and um, appreciate you having me on to talk about uh, my favorite Baptist, my favorite preacher, and uh, about his work in uh, this area of mercy ministry. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, now your bro- your book is broken into two sections. Uh, part one deals with Spurgeon's teaching, and and part two deals with Spurgeon's practice. So, why don't we start with a conversation on Spurgeon's teaching, specifically uh, his teaching on social issues? Uh, how how did Spurgeon preach, and and how did he teach on topics that would be considered social issues? Yeah, this is a, an interesting question. So. Spurgeon, the, the idea in, in that section of the book is that Spurgeon regarded mercy ministry, benevolent ministry, social concern, whatever you would like to call it, um, as not merely optional or preferable for Christians to be engaged in and churches to be engaged in, but something that he felt was actually essential to the life of the Christian and the ministry of the local church. Hmm. Now, it's important we we frame that you know, correctly, he's going to argue, he believes that the mission of the church is principally to preach the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, to make disciples, to build up healthy local churches. Uh, he believes that's the primary mission, that's the target. Uh, but but downstream of that, he believes that if people are truly converted by the gospel of grace, they will themselves become gracious. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll become Luke 10, good Samaritans. Uh, who are eager uh, to help and serve others. They'll become a people zealous for good works, as Paul says in Titus 2.14. Uh, they're going to be compassionate, kind, gracious, and eager to give themselves to good works of mercy and charity toward others. And so he's very much going to preach for that. He's going to argue that one of the marks of regeneration, a new birth, uh, is a commitment to doing good to poor and needy people, mm. not just in the church community, but also in the surrounding community in London. Uh, he he would say that uh, every Christian ought to be a friend of man. Uh, when Whenever someone finds a Christian, they find a helper, someone who's eager to do good and to be benevolent uh, toward others. So, so that's kind of his starting point, that he believes God's people are to be marked by good works and mercy and kindness and compassion toward others. So then when it came to the social issues of the day, you know, Spurgeon was very much against, you know, preaching politics from the pulpit. Um, he didn't want to uh, uh, be a political partisan when he's engaged in preaching sermons. 
And yet there were certain social issues that he thought he had to speak to precisely because they were really religious issues. Um, so, so matters related to helping the evidently sort of needy people in the world, uh, vulnerable children, widows, others. Uh, he believes that he has a responsibility and we as the church have a responsibility uh, to care for such people. And so in such cases, he didn't hesitate to speak to issues, whether it was people being oppressed or mistreated by the factory system in London, uh, people being overworked, orphans running the streets and not being cared for. Uh, he spoke out against slavery in the American South, some in his sermons and then also in, in other outlets as well. So he was very much willing to speak to those issues precisely because he believed they were clearly matters that related to uh, religious issues as well. Hmm. Now, I would assume uh, that in Spurgeon's day, it, it's not that unlike how it is in our day when it comes to speaking on social issues. And that is uh, the moment you stick your neck out and you decide you're going to take a stand on this, uh, you can just assume someone is not going to agree with you. <laughs> Which is why oh, yeah. so many pastors uh, decide to play Sweden on this and say, you know, we're not going to talk about these things. We're not going to deal with these things, you know, uh, because we know that somebody's going to disagree. We know somebody is going to say, you know, they're they're going to they're going to clap back, you know, or whatever. Uh, and and I, I would just assume you know better than I do that that's how it was in Spurgeon's day as well. So so how did he deal with those who disagreed with his teaching? And and what can we learn today from 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 him? Yeah, well, there's yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, it sort of depends on the issue. So, uh, you know, when it came to, for example, his comments about slavery in the American South, mm -hmm. uh, I think he was generally applauded by people in England, but he was he was lambasted in in the South. I mean, yeah. He received death threats. Uh, his uh, sermons were burned uh, in in you know the the town square in numbers of cities across the south and towns across the south. Uh, there was a movement to outlaw the reading, the publication and reading of his sermons in North Carolina, hmm. uh, and similarly in Virginia. Uh, so there were publishers and bookstores that were required to return copies of Spurgeon's sermons to the publisher. Um, so that would be one example where, I mean, the outrage was intense and he suffered much personal cost, you know, due to that stand. You know, in, in London on other issues, it just kind of depended on the issue. So he spoke out against unjust wars. Uh, he would do that often through the sword and the trowel. And when he did, some would applaud him and then some would write articles in newspapers against things he was doing and saying. Uh, he was involved very much in the debate over public education in England in the early late 1860s, early 1870s. And he was generally an advocate for public education, though he thought it should have kind of a religious grounding. And um, again, you had some people that viewed him as kind of their champion and others who did not. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I, but I I want to make sure we we understand him contextually. He it's not we shouldn't imagine that Spurgeon was regularly speaking to social issues. Mm -hmm. the, the political and social issues he spoke to were occasional and rare, but when he did, he was pretty unequivocal in his comments and was willing to bear whatever criticism you know, came his way. Mm. Um, and so he, 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 he didn't buck under the criticism. When, he, when the burden of the Lord was upon him and he felt this is clear, this is evident, Christians and pastors should be speaking out on these issues, he didn't hesitate to stick his neck out there. He was willing to speak out uh, when he felt the burden of the Lord was upon him and when he was addressing something that was that was clear in his mind, that he felt this is something Christians and the Bible can speak to. 
uh, with a good degree of clarity. Now, do you think that Spurgeon would be considered controversial today for both his passions and and even his views? Because, uh, as you said, you know, Spurgeon was you know he he didn't equivocate <laughs> when he spoke. I mean, everybody knew what what Spurgeon was saying when he said it. And so, you know, do you think that 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 uh, you know both his passion, his approach, and stuff, and even the views that he that he took, the stances that he took, do you believe that they would be controversial today? You know, you have a, a personality like Spurgeon's and a way of communicating like Spurgeon. It's hard to imagine him not being controversial in any generation. Mm-hmm. You know, our context now is very different from his. It, it's hard to imagine, you know, what, what would happen if you drop Spurgeon in the midst of contemporary debates and issues here. So so our context is, in, is influenced so much by debates surrounding social justice and, uh, you know, wokeism and whatever that is. And... Um, you know, Spurgeon is in a context where you don't have a, you know, the, the social gospel as we think of it was not uh, in the ascendancy in the way it would be maybe the generation after Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Christian socialism is becoming a thing in the latter decades of the uh, 20th century or 19th century, excuse me. And he's speaking out against that. Um, but he doesn't have the, the the massive polarization we see now in the conversation surrounding social engagement is not a factor as much in his context uh, in the 19th century. Now, I do think, you know, in our day today, he would he would have things to say in our context, I think, to folks on the left and on the right in this conversation. So I don't think we would ever be able to paint Spurgeon as woke or a social justice warrior or whatever. Um, you know, he had fairly conservative theological stances. He advocated for classical liberal principles. He was a big opponent of socialism and things like that. Um, he's not finding systemic injustice around every corner. Um, so, you know, we, we can't paint him like that. But then on the other hand, I do think he has something to say to folks uh, of a more conservative, uh, even a reformed stripe, where I think he would say to us uh, that perhaps in the last hundred years or so, we have not given ourselves uh, to mercy ministry and social concern as we ought. I think he's going to say we've we've lost something. Mm-hmm. We've forgotten something. And I, I speculate in the book as to the reasons for why that is the case for us today. I think we tend to see social engagement and social involvement as an impulse of, you know, theological liberalism or kind of a left-leaning kind of social ethic. Spurgeon's not going to be our friend if that's our our attitude towards social concern. Mm-hmm. He's going to say, look, no, the, the Christian tradition, the Reformed tradition, the evangelical tradition is to give ourselves vigorously to ministry of word and deed mm-hmm. and to not be gun shy about social involvement, mercy ministry, helping the poor and the needy, helping the fatherless and the widow, engaging in a major way to help our communities from a standpoint of benevolence and good works. And, um, Today, I think he would be a critic of some of a more conservative stripe who are so, you know, up in arms and concerned over social involvement. He's going to say, brothers and sisters, this is our birthright. This is something we should give ourselves to. This is to be part of the ministry of the local church. And we shouldn't cede that ground of social engagement and mercy ministry uh, to the liberals. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a blessed tradition, a Christian tradition, a biblical tradition, and a church historical tradition of Christians being engaged on the level of social involvement and mercy ministry, and we need to give ourselves to that in in a major way. And I think, guys, that would be very controversial today for obvious reasons. 
But one of the things I hope the book does is it will hold up for conservative evangelicals and even reformed evangelicals a vision for social engagement and mercy ministry, a sort of calling us back to this in a way that I think is theologically safe and biblically sound uh, and won't send us, you know, toward missional drift or, you know, uh, you know, drifting leftward uh, endlessly um, toward, you know, again, being a, a social justice warrior or something like that. Yeah, I think what what's going on in um, in our in our culture, and and we inherited it, right? I mean, it's it's not like it, it started with our generation. It's 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 been uh, it's been a long time coming, uh, but there's this there's this dichotomizing of of even just kind of using the divisions in your in your book of teaching and practice and so you've got the teaching people over here uh that are that are you know what you know what does the bible say maybe even just theologically you know what what is the what are the doctrines of you know of our faith and we've just got to we come here to gather together uh to uh to just remind ourselves to kind of recap this is what we believe this is this is you know what we believe about god this is what we believe about sin it's what we believe about Jesus, salvation, the end times, and so forth, and and we want to make sure that we articulate that well. Make sure that we we cross, you know, that we check all of our boxes, you know, and and and, and all of that. And that's that group over here. And then we have the group over there that is the uh, the social folks. They're the practice folks. They're the what do we do? <laughs> you know, how do we live? How do we uh, how do we live out the faith and 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 all of that? And you know this uh, very well that, uh, as you mentioned, you know, it was really kind of the next generation, uh, really the next couple generations after Spurgeon is where that dichotomy kind of gets etched in stone in our culture. You know, so the doctrinal folks were over here and they're going, look at those folks over there doing all that stuff, you know, <laughs> and and the folks. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and so, to, to, to your point, Ranjur, I mean, it, yeah, historically, you have it exactly right. Those first couple of generations of the 20th century, I think you have modernists and liberals sort of eroding Christian orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. You get rid of a doctrine of the atonement, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. a Christ dying for anybody in particular, and then uh, you know, moving toward a kind of universalism. You get rid of a doctrine of hell. Yeah. And uh, you begin to uh, 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 question those doctrines and erode those doctrines. What's left of Christianity that's worth holding on to of any value? Yeah. And I think where a lot of liberals and modernists went was the kind of Christian social ethic. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of build a kingdom of heaven on earth. This has, you know, love for neighbor becomes kind of the main thing that's left once you get rid of those pivotal spiritual doctrines yeah. of the atonement, hell, the inerrancy of the Bible, those kind of things. And so I, I do think that has an effect on people who are more conservative holding on to these doctrines, saying this is what's really important. We begin to say, well, yeah, you begin to go down that that path of you know love for neighbor, social engagement, you know that that begins to have a ring to it that rings of a kind of liberalism, mm -hmm. um, a, a sort of uh, significant, full-throated, robust interest in those kind of things. Um, I mean, it, it's there's a lot more to it than that, obviously, but I yeah. do think that creates a little bit of historical context mm -hmm. for why the conversation is different for us and why we feel anxieties. That Spurgeon would have never felt. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. got sixty-six benevolent institutions operating out of his church. He's wow. you know, trying to influence you know, the education of kids and uh, sending ragged schools and Sunday schools all over the city and street missions. And he's thinking this is just sort of basic Christianity, mm -hmm. you know, taking care of the poor and the needy. And um, but he's in a different context than ours, and so it's not complicated by some of the political and social factors that are present, you know, in our context in the last hundred, hundred and fifty years. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember in First John four. 
uh, John is talking to the believers, and he says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, uh, for love is from God, and anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then he says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And, and then he shows, he's like, in this the love of God was made manifest in us. Um, he sent his son you know, uh, uh, into the world that we might live through him. And then he says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And, and so there's this deep theology, you know, uh, uh, the theology of uh, uh, Christology, atonement, you know, all of this that's, that's involved in there. But then he goes on and he says, no one has seen God at any time. And he says, if we love one another, he says uh, that the love of God uh, is, uh, how does he say it? Um, the love of God is seen in us, I think he says, and and his love is perfected in us, which is such an interesting Ver, a line, that last line, the love of God is perfected in us. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And it's the idea that I think that you have the atonement, you have, you know, uh, the man, you know, the displaying of God's love in us, but that love is made complete, not when it stops with us, <laughs> but when it's channeled through us into other people. Amen. And Amen. and it's that it's the package. <laughs> it's not just the you know sitting around going, boy, it's so great being loved. <laughs> yeah. you know, well, we're, we're not extending it, it to anybody. And and you, know, you use that first John passage, a glorious passage. It, this is an interesting discussion that's come up since I've been doing interviews on the book and talking to folks about the book. The 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 kind of idea you just cited, Ranjour, is um. For some of the folks I talk to, particularly on the right, conservative folks, reformed folks, what have you, they are willing often to, to, to see the idea, well, of course we're to love one another in the church community. We're to love our brothers and sisters. I mean, that's a very prominent theme mm -hmm. in the New Testament. Jesus says it'll be the mark of, of true discipleship, John 13, yeah. that we love one another. And often that is limited to the church body. And I, I would say, biblically speaking, there is a special priority given to the kind of love we share one with another as Christian people sure. and brothers and sisters in the life of the local church. But I, I want to push that a little further and to say, we do have imperatives biblically to mm -hmm. love those outside the church community. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty massive and tremendous. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's not limited to just those in the church community. Right. I cited Titus two fourteen, where Christ has his people and to be a people zealous for good works mm -hmm. Uh, and he defines good works in Titus 3 as those things that are profitable for people, that are helping cases of urgent need, that presumably, I think, extend beyond the church. Uh, Paul was to help the poor, uh, just as I was eager to do. Galatians 6.10 tells us we're to do good to all. He doesn't say especially in the household of faith, but we're still to do good to all. And I think a huge, a huge passage that comes into play in these discussions is our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount in mm -hmm. Matthew 5. He says, we're to be a city on a hill. Uh, we're to be a light to the world. And the light there is not the preaching of the gospel. Mm -hmm. He says that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is an outward-facing kind of good and benevolence and mercy we're to show to the surrounding world that's to sweeten our witness and enhance our testimony. Mm -hmm. It's to extend those outside the church community. So I just want to encourage, and I think, so this is where Spurgeon is going to give He's going to push us a little bit is to say, no, it's not sufficient simply to do good 
toward those within the church community or to love and care for only those within the church community. He's going to say the love of Christians is to extend beyond the church mm-hmm. uh, to needy people of every stripe. Uh, we're to love our neighbors. We're to be good Samaritans. We're to engage in good works that are a major part of church ministry and church witness and mission uh, throughout the world. And I think he's I think he's exactly right on it. I mean, my my book is a, a book of historical retrieval. It was trying to show us something that was true in the past, but also to kind of, in a prescriptive way, commend it as a pattern for us to follow. Yeah. But here we have a guy who cannot be confused on his gospel proclamation and his theological fidelity to conservative orthodox biblical doctrine. But alongside that, there is this heart that is burning for needy people. Uh, and he's going to push us toward that and connect that in a really beautiful way to what we believe about the truth of God's word as well. So I, that's why I say I think it's a, a theologically safe and a biblically sound approach to these issues that I think could show us a way forward in the, the days ahead. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned how many institutions uh, did uh, did well, in, work in on eighteen eighty four it numbered sixty six. Okay, and and guys, it, it encompassed practically every area of human need: um, ministries to prostitutes and police officers and to the blind of London, uh, orphans. They had subsidized housing for widows connected to uh, the tabernacle. They had a clothing uh, bank, a, a food pantry. I mean, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And um, it was a, a hub, like a like a hive of uh, benevolent activity that operated out of that church uh, seven days a week from seven in the morning to 11 at night. Um, it was known for this 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 haven for needy people all over London. Mm, that's amazing. Were there any other things? Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, they're the creating of institutions and things like that. Were there any other ways that he put this into practice? Yeah, I mean, apart from his his trying to lead his church in this and founding these institutions and supporting these institutions, he's getting behind the efforts of his in various ways, often advocating for their ministries in the sword in the trial, or he'll he'll promote something some member doing in one of his sermons, uh, and then also privately, he was quite a philanthropist. Hmm. Uh, he gave away hundreds of thousands of pounds throughout his life, uh, which would amount to you know millions and millions of dollars in our day. Um, you know, he was. Uh, but it was, I mean, revenue is coming in from his book, sermon sales. He was incredibly popular. Hmm. Hmm. And his life, I have a chapter in the the book, I call it The Good Samaritan in London. It's talking about you know, hundreds and thousands of personal acts of kindness and benevolence and charity that marked his life. Things like, I mean, he, he grew flowers in his garden uh, to have them clipped and sent to sick people at the local hospital. Uh, he goes ahead and buys uh, 10 cows to produce milk, the proceeds of which he gives to a widow in his community. I mean, that was just kind of the the, the, the man he was. Mm. Now, um, th- first off, that's that's amazing. <laughs> that that uh, uh, just the 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 crazy generosity. Uh, you know, it, it, that's one of the things I think that's very important for us pastors is that. You know, you say it from the pulpit. You you better you better you know show it <laughs> in your life as well. Uh, obviously, you know we may not have the 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 wealth you know that that Spurgeon had you know in order to to be generous on that kind of level. Uh, but at the same time, uh, in the level that God has given us, you know, and with the resources that God has given us, to have that just that that um, uh, kind of Christian instinct. Of caring for uh, for those that are around us and uh, and and making sure that needs are met uh, in 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 our communities and so on is very very uh, instructive. 
Yeah, and I'll also say, uh, you know, Paul does instruct Timothy and Titus, his sons in the faith, his his um, uh, his guys, that they're to be an example in good works. Mm-hmm. Uh, in both First Timothy and Titus, that appeal is made. They're to be an example to the flock in conduct, in speech, in their, their good deeds toward others. And so I think it's something for pastors to consider. It's something that Spurgeon did. He was an example to others and how to practically love and serve others, an example of generosity, an example of benevolence and kindness. And the pastors should, I think, exude that and exemplify that for their congregations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, was there anything that surprised you along the way? Was there anything that you uh, that you read where you went, wow, I, I didn't expect that? Well, in a sense, the whole project surprised me because I grew up with Spurgeon being quoted by my pastors. Uh, in my teenage years into college, I began to read his sermons uh, read some biographies on him. I mean, I knew him as this great preacher and this great defender of orthodoxy, you know, the downgrade controversy at the end of his life. Sure. A uh, great defender of uh, conservative evangelical belief. But most people I met, and I was in this category, knew nothing about his orphanage, uh, knew nothing about, you know, these dozens and dozens of benevolent institutions, knew nothing of Spurgeon the philanthropist. I mean, you go to London today, they have these commemorative blue plaques everywhere. You know, this is where Queen Victoria did this. This is where Charles Dickens did that. You know, they're kind of always, you know, commemorating their history. Mm-hmm. And um, they have several for Spurgeon, actually. And on those blue plaques, he's often referred to as a great Baptist preacher and philanthropist. I didn't know Spurgeon the philanthropist. I didn't know Spurgeon, you know, the, 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 the champion of orphans and widows. And the, the the advocate for American slaves and uh, uh, people who were oppressed in uh, uh, taken advantage of in London's factories and uh, the advocate even for like British seamen who were um, you know abused in different ways by those who contracted them uh, things like that mm-hmm. I didn't know about that Spurgeon and to me he just appeared brighter and greater and um, so much more attractive. Uh, even then I knew him to be, I mean, I always loved Spurgeon, but I just saw him when I saw the deed component that was wedded and harmonized with his word ministry. Uh, it just appeared to me so wonderful and bright and good and something to be, um, something to be emulated, I think. So that would be the aspect that was most surprising to me. He just, I didn't think Spurgeon could appear more attractive to me uh, than he already did, but he does now. Well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. How can churches uh, today take what Spurgeon preached and 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 even you know obviously not just you know his his example but but scripture itself how can we take uh these things um uh, these messages on caring for the poor and how can we implement them in our churches what what are, what are some starting steps that you would uh you would prescribe for our listeners yeah well I think that um I think uh, pastors and, and elder teams should make this a matter of conversation get it on the agenda for the elders meeting, how do we as a church the Bible statements regarding mercy ministry and good works and benevolence, and how should that be integrated into the life of our church? So thinking, you know, how could a church do this? So, and, and from there, you might consider what your members are already doing. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, you know, be the one to, to dream up every good thing that your church does. Consider, are there ways our members are already engaged? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in our own church, most of the mercy ministries we're connected to now were started by our members, and we as elders just identify them as, as good things to get behind and, and support. 
So it doesn't have to be something the pastors entirely have to shoulder on their own. You know, in our own context, like in my own church, I'm most encouraged when I see, apart from any formal efforts of our church to get after this, members of our church whose lives are populated with hundreds and hundreds of acts of kindness and benevolence, you know, local ministries, uh, whether it's a crisis pregnancy center or a food pantry, or uh, lots of our folks are connected through our church to a a ministry to uh, women who have been caught up in addiction. Uh, We love just pushing our members toward those things, get involved and just being kind and benevolent. And over time, what happens is the church gets a reputation of being uh, loving toward others and merciful toward others, and it enhances the witness of the church. I mean, the goal ultimately is not to, you know, rescue people from hard circumstances in this life, as important as that is, but to rescue them from an everlasting hell. Um, you know, what good is it to fill the belly if ultimately they're going to starve apart from Christ forever? Mm-hmm. So ultimately, we're trying to bring them to Christ and a spiritual salvation. Um, but one of the ways we can do that is by showing them in millions of practical ways that we love them and care for them, including, you know, their physical needs and material needs. So I think there's lots of ways churches can get out. And in the book, I don't want to give everything away, but there are lots of suggestions and sort of practical recommendations I make for how we can apply what's written uh, in our own context today. Yeah, yeah. You did. You said something that I thought was really helpful uh, in that for pastors, it, it, you don't have to be the ones thinking up all of the ideas. One of the amazing ways that I've I've been blessed uh, over over the years is when God just raises people up and and He puts on their hearts, you know, uh, different concerns and uh, different different needs that are in the community. And we just think as a as a as a church, how can we back them up in that? You know, what can we do to to encourage them? What can we do to support them? Uh, you know, in in those uh, those different ministries, and some of the best ideas have not come from our our elders meetings, um, uh, but the best ideas have just come from God raising people up and gifting people in the church, uh, different members and so on, uh, who just have the skills and they have you know the the gifts you know from the Spirit. Uh, to be able to uh, to meet those particular needs, or at least to to kind of spearhead those types of efforts, and that that's always been such a blessing. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just share an anecdote on that. You know, in in the 1860s, uh, Spurgeon um, he he walks into a prayer meeting, and he says to his congregation, "You know, we're a huge church. We have a lot of resources. Uh, there are more ways that I think we need to be engaged in serving needy London, and there's more I think we can do for the Lord." And so he just asked his members, you know, let's let's pray for God to direct us in this and to guide us in this and to show us ways we can better serve and benefit uh, our community. And uh, and what happens is, you know, they pray, and it's um, not but a few weeks later, uh, this wealthy, um, uh, she was a, a widow of this uh, well-known Anglican uh, pastor. She has like 20,000 pounds that she wants to endow to start an orphanage. Mm. And it's out of that that the orphanage is born. And there's actually a number of other benevolent ministries that sort of spring out of that very prayer meeting where members are coming to Spurgeon and recommending ideas for different things. This this has been such a great conversation. Uh, any final words of encouragement for pastors and church leaders listening this week? No, I just encourage you, brothers, you know, that our call is to be uh, faithful in word and in deed and, uh, and to consider, you know, what is our responsibility? What does God call us to? with respect to needy souls outside of Christ, people who are materially needy and poor, uh, but those who are also, also, of course, spiritually impoverished. And I think the contemplation of that question and the study of that question in Scripture will lead us 
to be eager to preach the gospel to lost and needy people. And it will also lead us, I think, to be eager to be engaged in good works of kindness and benevolence toward others as well. So search this out in the scriptures. I hope the book and Spurgeon himself uh, will be a good prod to us in this and a good example we can consider uh, and hopefully emulate, uh, but ultimately look to the scriptures and uh, those great examples in church history to help us in this. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for uh, for taking time to join us again this season. Uh, if you have yet uh, to purchase Spurgeon and the Poor, uh, once you consider doing so today, I think it'll be an excellent addition to your libraries. And I want to thank you also for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. If you found this conversation helpful, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. Uh, We'd love to hear any feedback that you're willing to give us. As always, it's our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors. And I hope that we've done that today with this conversation. And as always, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.